Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, listeners. This is our 20th podcast. Yeah, let's have a celebration. And we are today, Dr. Tim Dodsworth, Mrs. Maggie Hemsworth and myself, going to discuss uh, a court of appeal uh, decision, Good Life versus Whole Fire Protection on the interpretation of an exclusion clauses. And um, a short case, actually, by comparison to what so whoever chose that case, thank you very much. I think that so, would have been Maggie. She probably thought we need a relief after all our complaints yeah. in yeah. the previous. I'll, I'll, I'll take the credit <laughs> Okay, thank you. I'll get thank my you. coat now and go. No, 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 no. Please don't. We definitely need you to stay. But we might be in agreement. I don't know. Let's see. That might be well, a, that's a dangerous surprise. thing to say. So. Oh, I know to say, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah, you've, yeah. now you're really yeah, I've tempted providence. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, on the fact, which not only this is a short case, but are surprisingly simple, we're doing well on this 20th podcast. So, Good Life was a, a producer of frozen food and had a big factory for which they needed to be protected against all kinds of problems, including fire. They contacted Whole Fire Protection, which is a company providing fire sprinkler systems for use in commercial, industrial and other kinds of development. Good Life asked for a quotation, which was sent to them through Whole Fire Protection standard terms and condition. And the price quoted for the contract was just over £7,000. Good Life took a while to decide whether they were going to agree, but eventually, over a year later, agreed, and the sprinkler system was installed at uh, the said price. Ten years later, a fire occurs in Good Life factory, destroys all kinds of things, property, and of course, well, all kinds of things. And Good Life was claimed on their insurance, who then, through a subrogation claim, sued Whole Fire Protection for a whole load of money. And a dispute arose because Good Life Factory pointed to Clause 11 in their contract which specifically stated that it, they exclude all kinds of liability for loss, damage, etc., etc., resulting from their negligence or delay or failure or malfunction or anything else. So quite a wide-ranging 
clause excluding their liability. And the claimant said that this was an unfair clause. They also stated that by that clause, they tried to exclude their liability for not providing a suitable sprinkle system. The court of first uh, instance stated that the clause was properly incorporated and it was perfectly reasonable and appeal to the Court of Appeal was made. The Court of Appeal decision, mainly Lord Justice Coulson, held, confirmed, upheld the decision by Justice Davis. Uh, the other Lord Justices, Mehan and Gross, simply agree with Lord Justice Coulson. So, really interesting decision. So, what do we think, Maggie and Tim? I personally agree with the decision. It's a very clear decision on the two questions of incorporation notice and then under the legislative control of the UCTA. But what do you both think? Was that the right decision? And what do we think of the reasoning of Lord Justice Coulson, which mentions insurance at length? Maggie, you are in your element in here, no doubt. So, pass the buck. What do we think of this decision? So I'm, I'm going to jump straight in. I, I um, For one, I thought the way this was set out by Lord Justice Coulson was, was very nice. We, this should be a, a sample problem question solving. Um, you know, if anyone wants a sample answer, I think there, there we go. Um, very structured, very clear. It makes it easier, of course, to pick out a few things. I thought I'd add to the, the introduction, though, this is, of course... Claiming negligence because a contract claim was statutory. You statute are absolutely barred. right. Um, so that that might explain some of the points that we're going through. I agree with the conclusion. Um, I think in, there was one part where we we might there was possibly a simplif oversimplification of of an aspect, uh, and I think we'll get to that when we get to reasonableness. Um, but I think we're going to probably start with incorporation. Now. On the incorporation point, the onerous and unusual, uh, and we're going to get back to one of my favourites, and I asked this just before the podcast started, is what's assigned? And the reason I'm asking that is because if this was part of, and I think this is one of the discussion points we can come to, if this was simply the contract that was put before them and they signed it, I don't think we should even be discussing whether the term was onerous or unusual as first. Now, I think there is room for debate if this was incorporated or if the terms and conditions were incorporated by reference. Now, I think there's a grey zone there in the incorporation by notice. We know that the onus on unusual aspect applies, the test applies, where there's incorporation by notice, because that came from Thornton and Shoe Parking. Um, and there's a good justification for that, right? You see, you, you, you're driving into the car park, there you go, there's terms and conditions, you've got, you've got about two seconds to fly over them, you would expect that particularly owners unusual are drawn to your attention. Different scenario, you've got the contract put in front of you and you're going to sign it. Right? You, you, you have an option there of either giving up that right or, or not. And I think 
the case there is that if you're signing it and the terms and conditions are right in front of you and they're part of the contractual document, there is no justification for the owner as an unusual test. I just don't think there is. Um, no, that would I've be my just, argument. I'll just cut in immediately on that. I don't think we've got crystal clear authority directly on that point yet um, because there might, for example, be a document which is signed uh, but nevertheless, the clause that you're talking about, for example, or the one that the, the dispute might centre upon, might be clause 372 in typeface 6. Uh, and even though the document is signed, uh, that would be too blunt an instrument uh, as, a, as a common law test, I would say. But we don't have crystal clear case law on that that the case that we've got i think we've raised it before is that 1930s one uh lestrange and grailcrob we probably need another case in a modern era to look at all the nuances that might be pertinent to that sort of problem certainly if the clauses are prominent and the document is short I think what you're saying would probably be sound in, in terms of the case law that we've got thus far. But what I have seen over the last two or three years, and it's only high court, I think, is just sort of tentatively saying we're not entirely sure that it can be that cut and dried and everything might need to turn on the particular context. So if you've got very small font, many, many pages, thrust at someone who has to sign then and there, you know, that raises other questions, as it were, than the simple one, have you signed or not? I think now, so you're bringing up a really interesting point there. I think I think the time factor is something that I'd really like to discuss in this case, because that yeah. to me seems to be an addition that we don't see very often, and at least is, is, is not within Okta, but, but is brought up. And maybe I've missed it. But the whole time factor thing is really interesting because the judge mentions it quite often. Do you mean whether a party has been pressurised by time? That's right. So they had a short, they had a very short period of time. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think the case law does touch on that mm. to sort of um, flesh out the Unfair Contract Terms Act test, as it were. That that would be a factor that that the court would look at. Quite, but it's not actually within either Schedule Two, right? It's not. Is well, it's not certainly not well, within that Section matter, Eleven. Because if you remember, the Schedule Two is illustrative, not exclusive. So Absolutely. Yeah. Upta is not trying to shut the door on the development of the common law, which runs alongside. So that's. I don't think that's a problem. No, yeah. and especially here, they said that you know, apart from paragraph B and E, the Schedule Two was not relevant. As well. well, well, that's the other yeah, issue well, he about said the that. drafting, yeah. isn't it, yeah. of the Unfair yeah. Contract Terms Act? Yeah. That specifically, technically, uh, the schedule is only referring directly back to certain sections. But again, yeah. case law has said that doesn't matter. The things that are in Schedule Two are, I would say, from the school of the bleeding obvious uh, that would yeah. be looked at regardless of whether it's that particular section that we have in mind. Because, again, I think it comes back to the point that the Unfair Contract Terms Act is not trying to exclude the development of the common law insofar as it is consistent with the provisions of the Unfair Contract Terms Act. The, the two live together quite happily. So 
I personally don't see that as a problem. And I, I, you'd have to look, as, as we were saying before the podcast, uh, when you, you posed that wonder, had, had someone signed this or not? I think you'd have to look at the first instance decision to see whether that's captured in the facts. Because, of course, we're looking at the appeal and that was not live for the appeal. Quite. Uh, I think I think here the, the point is it will be incorporated by reference, as far as I can tell, because they keep talking about the standard terms and conditions. So it would be a separate document. I've just had a quick look in Chitty, my favourite, of course. And there we find this additional requirement for onerous or unusual clauses applies to certain terms sought to be incorporated into the contract by notice. Quite specific there. It does not apply to contracts which have been signed. And the authority they give for that? The interesting addition here is, and I think this is, Maggie, this is something that we're seeing or that you are pointing towards as a recent development, says it does not apply to contracts which have been signed, although the case law has left open the possibility that in exceptional, and that's in quotation mark cases, this requirement may apply to a contract which has been signed. Yeah. So it would seem that the exceptional case, the first time we're seeing that, are actually the cases that we've discussed on this podcast, which yeah. is Blue Sky yeah. and Good Life. Yeah. So this is a development that we're seeing that we're quite clearly on this on this podcast both divided and and live to that we're seeing a new development. I don't know whether that is a well. I think is is it can't, can't we just agree that this is a case of never say never? That's not a particularly high threshold. I mean, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm just. I'm just, no, I'm just trying to see, you know, you're, you're quoting exceptional. Yeah. That in itself begs lots Quite. of questions. What yeah. is meant well, by exceptional? And when I say never say never, this is the common law saying, look, we can't have an absolute categoric rule here, given that the circumstances might vary greatly and the context would be very different. So, you know, like I'm trying to say, if it's a 900-page yeah. document in font size six, which has been signed in a hurry under pressure, can't you know? Does the common law really have that rigid rule? You've signed it. That's it. And and that's why I have trouble with this absolute bright line of but certainty. But here, I think that's where the that's why the court here discusses uh, the question of whether the term is onerous and unu or unusual. And I think here it's, uh, for me, um, that goes to the appreciation. The two are linked. So if the notice, yes. it's only when the, and, and the appreciation of whether a term was particularly onerous or unusual, as uh, Lord Justice Colson said, has to be appreciated in the context of the contract as a whole but therefore that would go to whether this is an exceptional but yes it, I, I think Tim you're right to say that I hadn't even to me it was not even a problem no because it, it, it actually it wasn't a live issue in the it case that we're looking issue. at this, is, this exactly. is Tim raising a question it's not a question that yeah. the court of appeal had to answer yeah I'm not entirely sure that it is the common law saying well we need to have another look at this I'm wondering, because in, in both of those cases, if the courts had been clear that they're departing from an existing bright line, which we know, which we knew existed, right? that, that that is quite clear. If they were departing from that, they would have had to, or they would have likely mentioned that they're departing from that. 
Here I'm wondering whether it's just a misunderstanding of the onerous and unusual, uh, unusual or onerous rule that, that the court simply has, and this happens a lot in exam questions for example, thought it simply applies to all terms and conditions no matter what we're looking at. And therefore really it's, it's a misunderstanding of when, when that test is actually applicable. So we may be slipping into, into the judges simply not seeing a distinction between the two. And it seems to me here, the way it's set out, is there's no appreciation at all that onerous and unusual might require a higher standard, right? Exceptional cases might require a higher standard than the onerous and unusual test if this had been a notice. Well, because it can't be the same test. It can't, it, right? There's, otherwise, why mention that in exceptional cases, this requirement may apply to signed contracts. Yeah, but it's it's not fair to make the criticism of the Court of Appeal because yeah, this point I is, agree. is not live. So you can't yeah. say that the Court of Appeal has, has missed things. Uh, no. That's not correct. The Court of Appeal is only dealing with the live issues that are brought to them upon which yeah. they have permission to appeal. So, yes. so no one's missed a trick here. It's no, just not live for the purposes of this judgment. Well, it's live to the extent that they're discussing whether it's onus or unusual. Yes, but but no one is putting into the frame the question whether That's this true. has been signed or not. Yeah. And no one is concerned with that. True, true. So that, that is probably, I will, I will concede on that point, but have, not on the whole substantial point. <laughs> I do not think... They, uh, can come and, they can come and find I me. I do not yes, think they uh, got that wrong at all. Uh, it's just no, they, no, just, they naturally started with, um, <laughs> is it unusual or onerous? Because that exactly, is relevant to know whether enough yes. has been done to draw it to yeah. the attention of the parties. I am speculating, yeah, Tim, point. that this was not signed. Otherwise, it, it so probably yes. someone would have simply recorded that fact uh, in the yes. in the submissions or the judgment, and so it is likely, as you are speculating, that uh, what was signed was the order and the acceptance, possibly by email these days, and these twenty eight pages or whatever it is of terms and conditions uh, were were appended to that or simply referred to it. So it's not not a live issue. Severina, have I done enough to cause you know disruption? Uh, for you when you said we all agree on this. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the notice point is, is an interesting one because, as Severine said, Good Life had this uh, set of terms yes. for Nearly several a year, months. Nearly it says. So yeah. um, in that respect, it, so in that respect, do you see what I'm trying to say? The signature idea, if signed or not signed, it sort of falls way back into the background. This is not tiny font. This is not 900 pages of impenetrable text uh, and you've had it for a good year. So whether you've and signed the damn thing or not, it does look like you've had enough chance. Do you see what I'm yeah. saying? And it's clause 11 yeah. and in, in the judgment, terms and conditions is written in capital letter. I don't know whether that is to reflect that it was written in capital letter. Yes, actually, uh, Lord Justice Col Coulson picks yeah. that up because he says, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Lord Justice Coulson, we've, we've had uh, dealings with his judgments before on TRW and Panasonic. And, and I do like the cut of his jib. He's, he's quite sort of robust and he has some rather neat phraseology. 
But he's got another one here when he talks about the apocalyptic wording. Yes, I've got that one. I know, yes. <laughs> Which was drawing to the attention of good life. You know, if anything happens, it's on all on your head. Don't come looking for us in bold font. So Lord Justice Colson is saying, actually, that tells in favour of hall protection, the fact that they went to the trouble of drawing specific attention to this, as he says, the apocalyptic wording. Yeah. Well, it actually on that point, it's very funny because when 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 we teach our students, you know, we usually well, maybe I suddenly realize that maybe I'm a bit too quick here to uh, dismiss a contract law clause which says whatsoever, etc., um, etc. Et because here it is really, really wide. Uh, and so therefore here, um, I I realise that for a point of pedagogy, it's really interesting to see that. Well, then we get into then we get into the argument about interpretation yes. of precise yes. wordings yes. with an exclusion yes. clause. And you probably do need mm-hmm. to use the N words. You need to talk about negligence yeah. and carelessness. Yeah. Uh, and so howsoever caused or whatsoever actually won't cut it. I know. I, I yeah, think but, uh, you, you need to go further than that. But these guys do. And, and they did. And you I know, think they any learned that from, what was it, Canada Steamship or yeah. whatever has given us pretty good steel yes. on that. I mean, this is, this is clearly a, 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 a fairly well-worded clause, yeah. really, in terms of trying to cover everything. But what saves them is the insurance question. So the, the drawing to attention point probably is a very difficult one for good life. And so you can, I think we're in agreement agreement on that aren't we uh, it's no surprise if we put it that way that both first instance and court of appeal said whether this is unusual or onerous nevertheless sufficient yes. more than sufficient probably yes, have been done to, draw it to your attention so it was incorporated yeah and so yeah. relatively short shrift on on that sort of point and so the main point of the argument is really whether it fails or passes uh, the Unfair Contract Terms Act um, reasonableness test. Well, these are, these are the two questions, aren't they? It's, yes. It's on the one hand, yeah. do you know? Do you did you know about it? And yeah, they're the could two questions. But it? but in terms of arguing this, uh, the reasonableness one is yes. is the, the, the got more meat to it in terms of. I think the the first point, which, as Lord Justice Colson himself says, you know, is further divided into, you know, is the clause particularly onerous or unusual? And then, if so, is it uh, brought to good life's attention? Yes. Yes. So he's just, as Tim said at the beginning, uh, giving a lecture in uh, the, the way in which logically one should progress through this. So that's great. Yeah, no, but I, I think I, I All like... I'm saying is I don't think they had much difficulty. They've set out what the hurdles are, but in actually uh, applying the law to the facts that we've got, I don't think it was a great struggle for either first instance or court of appeal to get to the bottom line yes ah, it's okay sorry i misunderstood what what, what you that's had all said. i'm saying okay. and so then we then pass to uh, if you like yes, the, the meat, meat of, of the dinner, the dinner okay. <laughs> which which is this whether this is reasonable or i know but what i like in both setting is that the court takes a really pragmatic look at it by reiterating the importance uh, so in the first uh, two questions you know it they look at it 
in the context of the contract as a whole. So they look at it in practice and then they apply a similar pragmatic viewpoint on both. So yes, was it difficult to establish the first question? No, but they still did, Coulson still spent a fair amount of time and I like the way it was a very pragmatic common sense decision for both sets of questions. That's what I want to say. I'm not disagreeing. I just... Fine. Um, I, th- I think there's some background facts that are quite interesting uh, that may be colouring what, what what the end result is here. Um, you referred to the fact that the claim in contract was statute yes. barred. So uh, it's a six-year period for contract. So the fire was 10 years after the installation. So they'd had it in contract. Uh, but uh, negligence, again, it's six years because it's property, not personal injury. Um, but that runs from the loss. So the, the time is much more generous if you frame this in negligence. Nevertheless, the Court of Appeal is saying the contract and the terms are relevant now to determine whether there is liability in negligence, if that makes sense. So there's a nice sort of um, duality here between uh, tort law and Yes, maybe I should have mentioned that. Uh, Another interesting interesting point is, I think you referred to the fact, as did Lord Justice Coulson, uh, that uh, Good Life Foods were insured. They were insured at the time of the installation, but a contract lawyer will be thinking, actually that's probably not terribly relevant because most property insurance is going to be looking at uh, what insurance you had at the time of the fire. Well, they did because they're insurance company. So we don't know if it's the same insurer because 10 years have passed. Yes. Are you with me? But insurer at the time of the fire is picking up the tab here if they can't pass it by subrogation to the liability insurer of Hall Fire. So the reality, you talk about practicalities here, the reality here is that this is a contest between two insurers. Yes. A a property insurer for good life, and that would be the insurer at the time of the fire, probably on most property policies, uh, to my knowledge, whereas the the liability insurer is obviously Hall Fire Protection. So the battle is... Not specifically the parties themselves, it's the people behind the parties, as it were. And in fact, I think Good Life had been paid by their insurer, which is why you, you yeah, said it was a subrogation yeah. case. That, that, I that assume is so. Paid. Now, we would usually say, in, in, when we're teaching contract law, we usually don't get into this amount of detail. But in real life, I think you would usually say to people that the insurance position of parties is not relevant in order to decide liability. That in principle, certainly in terms of tort law, is so. But uh, Unfair Contract Terms Act, for example, does make the insurability, if we, if that is a word, it is a relevant point. Uh, and that actually is quite a relevant point, I think, for the Court of Appeal here, because they are saying the reality, and Severin, you were talking about the practicality, the reality, the pragmatic view, the reality here is that the party who's best placed to uh, cover the risk of fire in this type of situation is the owner of the factory. Actually, yes. Rather than 
uh, a liability yes. insurer who would not know and be able to rate the sorts of risks uh, set quite as easily and the amount of uh, loss any way as easily as the property insurer. Yes. And so we can see now under the unfair contract terms that that sort of insurance background practicalities uh, of the market, as it were, it is a relevant consideration. It's not the be all and end all of it, but it's certainly in the pot of things as to whether this is reasonable or not. So that I noticed that, you know, you're saying I've got an interest in insurance law. I noticed that for that But reason. also, I mean, as Lord Justice Coulson says, insurance is at the heart of the matter because so for a pragmatic reason, the clause 11, even though it was not drafted as three subpart, clearly says that if you want us not to exclude all that, you can tell us and we'll provide insurance on that, but it's going to cost you an awful yes. lot more. So yes. even though they were, you know, they they didn't do that because they took out uh, that insurance, but therefore the insurance comes in in relation to that in assessing the, the reasonableness. But it also comes... Yes, but it's it's an aspect there of choice, yes. isn't it? An, an Unfair Contract Terms Act uh, it embraces that factor as well. So if the customer has some choice about the, the the level of protection, if we put it like that, or the the variation in the terms, then that is a relevant factor yes. too. So hall protection or whoever's drafting their documents uh, was alive to that as being likely to be a point in their favour so can you see that some some quite clever drafting going on here? Absolutely, I and I think that was picked up on uh, by Lord Justice Coulson on the first set of question, and here it I think Lord Justice Coulson, and that's why I think it's a really pragmatic uh, decision because he asked to whether the clause was uh, onerous or not had to be assessed according to the context of the contract as a whole. And the fact that, and so he he highlighted that it was a reasonably modest sum, seven thousand pound, for installation of the hall sprinkling system. But for me, what is interesting, and I am agreeing with you, Maggie, on that, there was also no maintenance obligation. So I think uh, Lord Justice Coulson made the point that it made perfectly business. It made a perfect business sense for coal fire to protect themselves by not being liable in an extended uh, manner and so therefore the clause being not unusual i think it was all, the point was also made that it was not it was in line with um uh, business practices well it was in, at the far in, end in of the spectrum it was it was meant it, but uh, within yeah. the 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 realms of what was acceptable in that particular yeah. market i think your yes, point about and, ongoing maintenance might have if there had been ongoing maintenance obligations contractually through the 10-year period right up yeah. to the time of the fire that i think would make a difference yes in terms I of this idea have. of simplistic ability yeah. to rate risk yeah yeah then hall fire protection liability yeah. insurance that that body that insurer has much more to go on yeah. in terms of rating that risk whereas yeah. if it, as you say it was a one-off contract yeah gone into the past by 10 years yeah. um you know it, it's a quite a different 
thing, I think, a, quite a different animal as a contract. So, you, yeah. yeah, I would agree with you. And, and the Court of Appeal have, have, have noted that as being yes. relevant. Do you know what else makes complete business sense? Oh, I probably do. Go on, go on. <laughs> it's, the... it's a place up north. It is. As, as we like to think down in dark. Oh, we're Denham. getting good at this. It'll it'll be Newcastle. It but is. I can't say it in the right sort of accent. No, all right. I will offend too many northerners. Yeah, we better not try that. Uh, Newcastle Law School is now offering a brand new LLM in Emerging Technologies and the Law. Find out how law economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world. Visit ncl.ac.uk to find out more. And thank you Newcastle Law School for sponsoring our Yes, thank you. Contract. I realised that I didn't mention that at the beginning, so that's my uh, failure. I know, oh, I know. Oh dear, I know. oh dear. We'll have to find out whether we signed the contract or whether we could exclude that. I know, but um, also we <laughs> need to thank Luke for his wonderful... Ooh, editing and patience and patience and, and patience <laughs> yes. and a lot thank of patience you. considerable amount of patience probably listening to us thank you Luke. i suppose we should thank our listeners for their patience as well and listening to all well, of this yes <laughs> but you know they, they have a bit more control that's called a button that says uh hang up or leave or whatever um, <laughs> don't tell our listeners the that point, they might all go the other point i want to make before i forget uh, i don't know if you've picked this up but um Lord Justice Coulson uses uh, the unconscionable word. Ooh. Did you see no, that? I did see that. Yes, yes, I did. Uh, that's very. In- that's actually, to my mind, one of the most interesting bits in it. Oh, I because didn't pick that, that up. If you, if you have to remember, look, the Unfair Contract Terms Act is 1977, yes. when the world and Mrs. Hemsworth were very much younger. <laughs> but of course, but of course, things have moved on. And when that thing was brought into being, I think it really had Joe Public, the consumer, in mind. Because, of course, we didn't yes. have all the consumer legislation that we have now. So that was at the forefront. I think if you were to look back at the explanatory backgrounds, the, uh, oh, I'm going to use a bit of French on Severine now. Would you call that the travaux préparatoires? Mais oui. <laughs> you know, the, the genesis, if you like, of the Unfair Contract Terms Act, how it came to be and why it came to be. I think you would find that the consumer was probably uppermost in the mind of Parliament back in 1977. But of course, we have moved on immensely since then. You know, where we were in the common market then, and it's uh, the hokey dokey. We were in, out, in, out, shake it all about, and now we're out again. But we still have lots of consumer legislation. So the sort of heat, if you like, of Unfair Contract Terms Act has kind of like gone out of it. And, and there's a point in the judgment where I think Lord Justice Coulson is alive to this because he says, um, good life, uh, counsel. And he uses this lovely neat phrase because I'm always saying Lord, Coulson, Lord Justice Coulson has some nice phraseology. He says, counsel for good lives, parting shot. He said, so you know, oh dear, it's not going well now. His parting shot is that uh, the finding that this is reasonable, blah, 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 uh, emasculates the Unfair Contract Terms Act. And he says, I do not agree. Unfair Contract Terms Act remains in force to protect against unconscionable behaviour. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a word which seems to have been transplanted 
into the common law from equity. And I don't argue with that. But if you see where it's come originally, it's, you know, it's the sort of word we use in estoppel, we use uh, in undue influence, uh, we use in uh, rectification for a unilateral mistake, these sorts of things that are heavily overlaid by equity. And this is really now firmly placed in the common law. And that MacDessy case about penalty clauses, uh, they use the U word there, the unconscionable idea of, of a penalty. So Lord Justice Coulson is using unconscionable behaviour as a sort of uh, test, if you like, for the Unfair Contract Terms Act in this post uh no longer consumer because consumer has their own protection. What we're left with is commercial parties of varying sizes, but nevertheless commercial parties. So I'm going to suggest that maybe the Unfair Contract Terms Act, if not relabeled, should be rethought of now as the Unconscionable Contract Terms Act. Because oh, I think Denning is kind of returning. Justice Coulson uses. Now, what do you think about that? Talk about oh, the cat and uh, the pigeons there. I wow. know. <laughs> I know. You've really, I mean, that's worse. That Denning's idea of a general principle of unconscionability coming through here. I mean, that, I, I, well. Well, no, no, it's only to make the point that that word unfair is necessarily quite vague. And when the statute was created in 1977, it had to do a very wide job. It had to cope with consumers at one end of the spectrum and it had to cope with commercial parties at the other end of the spectrum. And even within commercial parties, there's an immense variety in terms of economic commercial muscle. But since the Consumer Rights Act 2015, if not before... We take the consumer out of this picture entirely. So are we left with something a little bit more firmer than unfairness, which I just have difficulty with it. It's just so vague. And, and oh, not just as I Co feel... Coulson. Okay, you look, you're going to like this, Severine, because here's I've got another thought that you'll like. Oh, no, don't, don't say it. Good faith. Yeah. An English way of, of dealing with... Good, Good faith. faith. Oh. oh, I feel an article coming along. Cancel you your plans for summer. There you are on a plate, <laughs> There you are. You have it on a plate. Off you go. That's 10,000 words. Cancel your plans for the summer, Maggie and team. We need to write an article on that. <laughs> and wow. we don't even need to change the... Um, it's still going to be the UCTA, but instead of the unfair... Yeah, isn't that neat? And oh. there was I thinking, God, Lord Justice Coulson, what a brain. Because yeah. he's taken the U word unconscionability, which has a track record. It's been used time and time again, mostly in equity, but it has been transplanted into the common law. So it's not an alien being. And it works jolly well here now in the modern era for the Unfair Contract Terms Act. And I'm going to call it the Unconscionable Contract Terms, Terms Act. Act. Whoa. Well, I okay. think I that's. It is Do you know what we need? Notes. We need Maggie up in the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Oh. Well, it but amused me anyway. Are we digressing from the case, though? 
Absolutely. That's that's the whole uh, point of the podcast, right? I don't think we are because he's trying to say to council's parting shot about the emasculation of the unfair contract terms act. He's saying, no, it's not. But uh, that act remains in force to protect against a very narrow area of behaviour. And what we have got here is not that. That's yeah. what he's trying to say. It doesn't yeah. emasculate the Unfair Contract yeah. Terms Act, but it certainly throws a sharp light on it to show how narrow this is likely to be, particularly between commercial parties of more or less equal muscle and commercial size and weight. And that's what you've got classically, I think, in Good Life and Hall. Can I jump in on that? Because you've just... You know, the whole bargaining position and, um, in a way, the inducement part, that's all Schedule 2, isn't it? That's all, that's all, uh, that's all within Yeah, I think it's captured. It's captured in that, yeah. Yes. So, interestingly, what is it, 2C, I think, is along the lines of, did the other party know about the term? Now, to what extent is that really the test that we had at the, at the beginning when, when we're looking at the common laws? You know, did, did they bring it to their attention? Isn't that the same kind of question? We'd have to look at the precise wording because I don't think it's exactly cast in the, that precise terms. Um, um, it, certainly the way in which the relevant conditions came into being... Hold on, there we go. Guidelines point. for application of the reasonableness test. Yeah, so this okay, is in paragraph 59, he set them out very nicely. I do like that he sets out... I think we're becoming a little bit of a fan club here of uh, Lord Colson. Um, <laughs> um, schedule to see. interesting that he is against good faith, though. So maybe. Oh, oh, limited Coulson, fan club. Yeah. Well, you know, but yeah. unconscionabilities. And, but you know, you know yeah, so, if we yeah. understood that separately, yeah. unconscionability, you and I probably wouldn't have too much difficulty with that, would we? And there it says no. whether the customer. No, I guess we don't. But well. I think, Sorry, I think you do. Um, two C, two C, <laughs> I, well, I need to keep that alive, otherwise, you know, what, what is it? I know, yeah, um, no, otherwise... It's otherwise just, it's just me against the two of you, that can't be, that can't be right. Well, then what's, what's close to um, C? Two C, whether the customer knew or, or reasonably to have known of the existence and the extent of the term. Right, OK. Now... Having regard why are we... things to any customs of the trade and any previous course of dealing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the... Be precise, Tim. Oh, sorry. sorry. I feel like <laughs> I'm back in the classroom there. There was a see? bit more to it there, wasn't there? Yeah, it? there was a little bit more to well, it. Well, it was in brackets. It was in brackets. Um, oh, but what is in brackets is really important. That's usually the, re the, the actually important yeah. part. Yeah. So to what extent do we think that's different? And if it's not different, are we just doubling up? Why? Because, of course, we know that for this, it's... It's that whole balancing act, um, and I think he says it quite nicely. You 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 put it all, you put either, one on each side of the scale, and then you weigh it up, something along those lines. So, if we're dealing with this separately in the common law, and then again, under the unfair contract terms act, in the common law, it's getting a singular test, right? Then it's just not incorporated, but in the unfair contract terms act, it's a bundle. Of, of elements. That doesn't matter. A statute will often have things that you might feel are replicated by the common law. But of course, the but statute. But the weight is different. Has, okay, but the statute has no direct control over the development of the common law. So the statute, Parliament may have decided that this they want to capture in the statute that will speak forever 
as it were, uh, until uh, revoked. So that's, you know, the, the objectives are, are different. That They will be uh, legislating, and that's the sort of assumption with statutory interpretation. They are legislating, the assumption is that Parliament is aware of common law as it stands at the time the statute comes into force. But of course, Parliament necessarily cannot be aware of the changes that might come into the future in terms of the common law. So Parliament may decide we want this captured in a statute. But the onus on unusual test was there before the statute, right? When did, the, when did we get the onus on unusual test? Yeah. Uh, well, sometimes the statute will, remember, sometimes the statute will try and capture um, yeah, the things case law. that they are aware of, Parliament yeah. is aware of, as exists in the common law at that point in time. So they might want to do that, or they might want to change what the common law is at that moment in time, or they might want to add to what the common law is at that moment That's in time. That's my point. Which one is it? I don't think it matters, does it? But, I mean, I suppose it... it, it well, yeah. Yes, well, it does. Oh, well, <laughs> Damn! No, I mean, yes, of course Tim, it does. Tim is speechless. Yeah, has that ever happened? Oh, yes, well, there we no. go. We've got, or both. Um, or maybe. <laughs> Or alternatively, who cares? Um, the the reason I don't I'm, think I'm... it matters that things could be replicated in the statute. But it's not replicated; it's given different weight, law. right? So if if okay, in the fine. common law, if they didn't know okay, about it, then fine. But this oh. is for a different purpose, as you're saying. Fine. Why is it a different purpose? So there's some subtle nuances. It's well, you could see that the two are linked. But that's so the point. if it is, if it is an. I, I think, but you're you're speaking of wording that was captured in 1977. Yeah. Fine, but are you comparing now the common law wording in 1977, or are you seeking to compare the wording in the statute 1977 with the common law in 2023? Because they're two different things. The common law will have developed over those 40, 50, however many flipping years it is. So you would expect the wording to be different, wouldn't you? The wording isn't what troubles me. It's, it's the weight given to a singular... So in, in, in the Unfair Contract Terms Act, it's part of a multifaceted test. In the common law, yeah. it's a singular test. Either, either it was brought to their attention or not. If it wasn't, it's out. Yes, but remember, as you said at the beginning, that is for a different purpose. Well, as as to whether it's been incorporated or not, but but we know we all know that incorporation was was basically a control of unfair terms. Uh, yes, well, we can well, before the Unfair Contract Terms Act. I think I would yes. say uh, all there was were the hurdles which the Quite. common law had developed after the nineteen seventy seven Act. Some of the heat, if you like, or the burden that the common law had to shoulder exactly was reduced. Because of the 1977 Act, nevertheless, you would still expect the common law to respond in the similar way that it had done pre-1977. So in so, a sense, these things are developing along parallel lines, mm -hmm. but the Unfair Contract Terms Act is not addressing the question is it incorporated or not, at least not explicitly and directly. It's no. concerned about 
a different thing. So what well, are I'm you supposing it's 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 whether team, are you saying, because the effect of the unfair you, contract terms act is is basically to find that that term was not in not part of the contract. Okay, the reasoning is that it was no, unfair or no. unreasonable. No, no, the unfair contract no. terms act is not concerned directly with whether it is part of the contract or what, not. in fact, it has to be part of the contract, otherwise Indeed. we don't even okay, need no, to, no, sorry, to go sorry, into I'll correct what I said, but it removes, the, it removes, the, point, it removes the term from the contract. The effect is that the, that the unfair term is removed from the contract. Yes, it, because it is not reasonable, and so therefore Same effect. it is taken out. Right, so one, one yeah. is, okay, this has never become part of it. The other is, it's going to be removed from it. But the effect is the yeah, same yeah, thing, is... it's not part of the contract. So I know, but well, that is just another layer of control because yes. there are, you know, if if the term is not incorporated, we don't need to go any further. So there is no need. In a way, it is a last possible way of control. So we either control because it's not incorporated, but if it is yes. incorporated, then we add those layers and yes. then the control uh, remember falls to the court. Remember, asking two different questions. Absolutely. The incorporation question is a process question. Yes, yes. this one is Whereas a the Unfair Contract Terms Act controls are primarily, in fact, I would say exclusively, directed to content. Yeah, to substance. It is just that the Unfair Contract Terms Act makes pr the process relevant to the determination as to whether the content is offensive to the yeah. statute or yeah. not. So yeah. if you like, there is a sort of overlap at that point. That's as far as I think I'm prepared to go. And therefore you can still, but here I think we're getting into slightly different thing and I think we definitely need to write an article because the more I think about it you've put some you know ideas into my head which is very dangerous but the, Maggie we've um, made it into Severine's you know, head I know yeah that is bad that is well, bad that's a strange um, place to reside I <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I think there is you know we can in order to untangle the reasonableness of the clause which is substantive process also come into it yes um, and so therefore yes. I don't personally have a problem with point c which need to be said that here was not relevant because Coulson said specifically that he was not relevant um, nevertheless so I don't have a problem with repetition no. in that sense you might say for the avoidance of doubt if you like for that yeah one. Yeah. But nevertheless, an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, but it links in a way the assessment of the reasonableness to the same prior to the Consumer Rights Act of uh, the assessment of the fairness test under the, uh, as was then the unfair terms in consumer contract regulations, that it was both process. Yeah, but you can see my point about the historical development. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point that, you know, and that's what's gone into my head that I will need to have a look at the travel oh, preparatoire of the than I could uh, UCDA ever to it, see, yeah. you see. So, yeah, that's why you put into my head, Maggie. Uh, and that it's really kind of like showing us now, I think. In, this is 2018, isn't it? So we've got a run of cases 
about the Unfair Contract Terms Act around that sort of era. What a surprise in the sort of three or four years after the Consumer Rights Act. We've now got a sort of uh, a little clutch of cases that, that are really obviously commercial, not consumer. And uh, I think it's showing us that um, freedom of contract, if you like, is a principle which is alive, very much alive and well in terms of these terms. Well, the fact, the fact that, that uh, paragraph 61, you know, we get, we get the, what I would call the, the epitome um, of the laissez-faire approach, you know, photo, photo production quote, that by the implication of law from legal nature of the contract into which the parties are entering. But if the parties wish to reject or modify primary obligations, which would otherwise be so incorporated, they are fully at liberty to do so by express words. Well, that to me is yes. is, is the summary of, of freedom of contract. And also that quote from Watford Electronics, which I think is is as old mm. as twenty years ago now, so two thousand and one. It, it's uh, Lord Justice Chadwick who says we're experienced businessmen representing substantial yes. companies of equal bargaining yeah. power negotiate an agreement. They yeah. may be taken to have had regard to the matters known to them. They should, in my view, be taken Quite. to be the best judge of the commercial fairness of the agreement which they have made. I think at that time that was the reaction towards the pendulum for interpretation and led to the you know uh -huh. iterative process, I suspect, from memory, that you know it's gone too much the other way. And I suppose it's a recognition by the court. God, I feel like there's so to much say more. We, we can't we, we don't have the tools to 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 evaluate uh, those business decisions we have to assume if this thing has been fairly brought to the party's notice and attention and they have negotiated on it then they know what they're about how can a law court know what a food manufacturer and a hall uh, and a fire protection service actually <laughs> knows or, or or can balance in terms of the judgment they make and it relates to the price doesn't it you know the the yeah, price that is a... being charged is must yeah. be colored by yeah, all the yeah, other terms including a... this one and i think that's that's the balance isn't it that they're trying to trying to get to is is on the one hand we need to allow people and at some point this is just simply not efficient anymore, right? If someone can get completely out of every responsibility under the contract, then there has to be something wrong at somewhere along the way. And I think it's it's trying to strike that balance of allowing the parties to do whatever they want. And there's cases where we need to get from the evidence of the, the contract itself and the parties that actually this can't have been an actual deal, right? This is not something the parties would have entered into. Um, and I think that... that the the economics play quite a large role. I think that's that's emphasised in the case as well. In the here, you know, it was just more efficient that those that knew the risks that would come out of even a negligent installation were insured against. And I think Maggie, you mentioned it at the beginning um, where you were saying at the time they entered into the contract they had insurance. I think that's a big part because that's something they would have taken into account, or at least should have taken into account. They would have calculated that. We we, ha we, we are covered for this. Why would we need any other? Now, one thing that struck me when I was looking at the, and I know we're running out of time, but I'll, ju I'll just do this last one. How much control in a fire suppression, suppressing system, suppressing system, you kind of want to know that it works. 
or you would want to know that it works. And one of the questions to ask there is who's in control of that? Who can who can control that easiest? And I thought I think we see that in cases like Brinkley. Well, if you look at the detail of this, I think it does come out that there was a one-year warranty. There was, well, there was a one-year warranty, but I, I almost went further. So if something is going to yeah. fail, and maybe statistically the odds are that it fails over a relatively short period of time, not a 10-year period of time. But, but the thing that, for me, that then came out would be that clearly it would be cheaper for Good Life to simply hire a surveyor, say, to test the system, get somebody else in to do that. That's still going to be cheaper than the price increase for Hall Fire to get insurance for the potential loss, you know, unlimited, presumably, of the whole place burning down. It has to be. Okay, well, all of that, those sorts of uh, testing that or surveying that you're thinking of uh, would naturally fall within the purview, if you like, of the property insurer. Quiet. So on an annual basis, before there is a renewal or you go somewhere new for a new insurer, that insurer may ask for all manner of, of information of that nature. So as far as we know, that may have, may or may not have happened. We don't know. To me, that, that then makes economically complete sense because it's, it's, it's simply the, the easiest way to allocate the risk and you just get somebody else in who will survey and certify that actually that was installed correctly rather than having to pay them to cover something that you're actually covered for in your insurance. But, but you can see the point that I was trying to make sort of half an hour or so ago. It might have been very different if this contract had within it ongoing maintenance by all protection. Yes, because then it wouldn't make sense to get a survey. Period, yeah. Because then they have some control and awareness of, of what a problem might, might I be. I think that we actually agree on. That's, well, that's good. <laughs> I always think, I don't know about you, I always think through debate and discussion comes agreement no no, no 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 look 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 what maggie said about <laughs> unconscionable i, I unconscionability agree with myself and, you know, the link with good faith <laughs> she's basically a relational no, relational and, and no, good faith lawyer now i would no I no would no, say. no she's not two yet, against one maggie no, sorry certainly recognizing she's she's certainly recognizing no, the no, link you've, you've not got me yet uh, you've yeah. not got me yet i'm no, no, still but, Purely an no. English lawyer here. Yeah. Using we an need English another twenty lawyer. episodes, I think. On and that we'll, note, we'll get, it, we'll get her there. I think you know we we'll agree that we are in agreement, and that Maggie is slowly oh. coming to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> that is... <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm staying okay. with Lord L- Justice note, Coulson. Note to I'm Luke: Please Lord cut Justice. just before Maggie can say no, 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 no. I disagree. <laughs> Thank you very much to uh, Maggie and Tim uh, for joining me uh, on this uh, lovely day uh, to discuss good life. Thank you once again to uh, Newcastle Law School for allowing us uh, the liberty of discussing these things. And thank you to Luke. Thank you very much, uh, listeners, for uh, bearing up with us. Remember that if you do have any uh, query or anything, just contact us or if there is a particular case you would like to us to discuss do contact us uh, through email thank on, you on very much oh yes thank you Small detail email. thank you very much thank, thank you, you. bye bye bye, bye.